Inside Westminster, chapter 254, back to the beginning. And so, dear listener, we have arrived back at the beginning of this tale of the shenanigans playing out behind the hallowed walls inside Westminster, where our trusty protagonist, Ptolemy Trudge-Jones, was stalked and trapped in a stock cupboard by one fair and pretty maiden, Mandy Swinton Eagle. For all the reasons behind his fall from grace, arrogance and moral laziness, wanting those around him to have a good time and therefore like him, he'd be remembered, rather than any slogan such as Get Brexit Done or Build Back Better. Remembered as one who truly embodied the growing and election-losing sentiment that there was one set of rules for them and another for the plebs. How had it come to this, he'd been saying to his exhausted wife, who had herself been forced to issue a humble apology for her momentary lapse when she'd snuggled into one of her many BFFs and allowed a photo to be taken. Drat modern technology, she'd shouted at her reflection in the mirror in the the morning the pic appeared in the press. She longed for a bygone day when the high and mighty of this land could, and did, act with impunity. When stories of temper tantrums over the arrangements of one's fifty teddies would be locked away by a gentleman's agreement or the signing of a non-disclosure act and wouldn't see the light of day and open ridicule. When Marcus and his unfortunate choice of friends would remain hidden from the onslaught of publicity. When judges, themselves part of the high and mighty, could be trusted to do the right thing and bury any chastisement for wrongdoing in a pointless, long and tedious report, out of which no good would come. Let alone would it hold anyone to account. Now, unfortunately for our fallen prince, this was no longer the case, and sex trafficking, as Anushka Blackwell had found out, or being the knowing recipient of its favours, was seen as the heinous crime that it was. And so, screaming and kicking, our hapless royal had been brought into the modern world, where being posh, entitled and white was almost a crime in itself. How would he fare in the bright sunny uplands of this, his mother's platinum jubilee year? Only time would tell, and the dreaded hands of time's relentless clock were ticking. Back to sunnier pastures in this new year, where this great nation was hoping against hope that they would never see another new variant of hideous Covid. The raft of new bills brought in to quell the masses and placate their natural desire to wreak vengeance on those partying inside Westminster who had betrayed them looked looked promising. About time too, Nifty Cadvar, Home Secretary, said to her husband. For what? Max Allen quizzed. Bringing in the Navy to help with these small boats, she replied. Won't it be a bit of a hammer to crack a nut, he retorted. Well, one thing's for sure, Cadvar asserted, and that's it can't go on the way it is. Fingers crossed then, Alan said. And toes too, Cadvar replied. Cadvar had been in on the policy proposals hastily put forward by the PM to dampen the fire of the nation's anger and to placate his own backbenchers, many of whom were in open revolt. The small cabal of senior members of Downing Street had called the two-pronged attack to shore up their ailing leader's soiled reputation 
Operation Dog's Breath and Operation Tempting Titbits. The former intended to pass the buck, blaming the minions slogging away inside Westminster and thereby, thereby excusing a mass clear-out thereof. The latter aimed at chucking lucrative, if ludicrous, new policies at backbenchers and the opposition alike. Both conjured up overnight on the back of a fag packet by whomever in the cabinet could be corralled in. The media was aflame with articles in all the newspapers and interviews in which Tory MPs ranted about the fury of their constituents. Even Irish Butt, the Chancellor, was driven to get up and politely terminate an interview after having actually, and for the first time, stated on record that he believed the PM was telling the truth. But had not missed the point that the mere asking of this was in itself a display of the state Potty and his acolytes were in. The PM's days were surely numbered. Along with Marcus, whose latest upset involved being informed by a top palace official that he, along with his nephew, Prince Rupert, would not be entitled to be awarded their mother's slash grandmother's platinum jubilee medal. Potty's fate seemed sealed and the media storm would not abate with Marcus's youngest daughter's hefty security cost being discussed as though it were happening now rather than more than a decade ago when she was on her gap year. And then, in all the papers, appeared yet another demand from the Winchesters, official police security if they were to visit this great nation. The princess stated that he would foot the bill. That just... They just don't get it, Prince Hubert commented to Juliana. What's that? asked the prince's wife. They chose to go, so they're not entitled to any Met security, even if they pay for it, he replied. Oh dear, Juliana said, adding, do you think Sass is actually behind this, crafting an excuse to never come back? Could be, but who really knows, commented the prince. It was as though the floodgates had been opened and everything and everyone to do with both outcast princes were fair game. And then another slap for the royal pair. High-level discussions about changing the law concerning whether royals were to be counts whether concerning which royals were to be councillors of state. Normally, the first four males next in line of succession were taking place so that it would exclude them both. Things couldn't be getting more serious for her, Madge, so that when her prime minister phoned to abjectly apologise for the two parties thrown on the eve of her husband's funeral, she almost laughed. Parties, my dear, how nice, she'd replied, almost mindlessly, sunk in her own doom-laden thoughts. And so Potty had been forced to personally apologise to our sovereign lady not once, but twice, during his short tenure at the summit of British political life. Knowing her then-husband intimately, Sophia Mowbray Dick had commented on hearing of his anointing as top dog and king of the world, the only way is down. How right she had been.